The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Motives tell us a lot about a person, what she's concerned about, what drives him, controls him, moves him, what he fears or what she loves, what she wants. All of this inside of us and and a whole lot more shows up in our motives, even more so than in our actions. When the motives become actions, we should look back and say, ah, I see why and I see then the heart See the inside. Why we do what we do is far more revealing than our our simple actions. So if you can touch the motives, if you can touch motivation, you're touching the soul, the heart, the inner person, in a sense, the real you. And to change the motive, to, to shape motive, therefore, is to shape ourselves. And for that, our passage today in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be pretty helpful in that it's going to shape us well, kind of reaching inside and and touching our motivation, twice in fact. In these verses, we're coming back to a major topic that we've seen a, a bunch of in this book so far in the previous chapters, Paul's defense of his life and ministry in the face of opponents in Corinth who were attacking him and trying to to pry the church away from him and also away from God in so doing. And this defense that Paul kind of launched onto it sent him in a bunch of different directions and eventually put him off on a, a tangent of sorts that we've been looking at over the last several weeks, discussing human frailty, our human natures, affliction and their purposes, afflictions and future glory and heaven and what happens to us after we die. We Christians, we have to remember, it's so helpful to remember that when we die, we will be with the Lord. This is where we finished up last week. Verses 9 and 10 from last week discussed how there will be a judgment, but before that we saw there's going to be actually the presence of the Lord. We go to him which is tremendously encouraging. And also then, as, as at the end there, a sobering reality, we go to him and face an evaluation of our lives. Not, really clearly, not to determine whether or not we go to him. We're Christians. The only way anybody ever comes into the presence of the Lord, into heaven, is welcomed in, is by faith in Christ's cross alone. That's settled For a Christian, that's settled. We are going to him. We will be in his presence. And then what 9 and 10 tell us is that, and when we get there, we'll face an evaluation for how we've lived our lives here and now. That's what brings us directly to our passage for today, where Paul comes back off this tangent of human frailty in heaven and comes back to the topic of his ministry and specifically explaining and defending how he has lived his life now, conducting it in ministry. And as he does so, he's going to lay out for us two motivations that were 
a revealing of what's in his heart, so to speak, that if, if we can understand them intellectually and kind of get them and grasp them and, and kind of put them in here, they'll, they'll change the, the us on the inside. They'll, they'll change what's motivating and driving our lives, and that'll be good. So that's what we're going to look at today. Paul explaining his life, what motivates him, and our hope is that God will use that to change, realign, drive our motives too. So we're going to look at two observations from this passage, uh, one related to each of the motives, but first let me read it. I'm going to begin in verse 11, reading down through verse 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5. Two observations, here's the first. Christ's judgment of us is motivation for proper ministry. Christ's judgment of us is motivation for proper ministry. Verse 1 begins with therefore, in light of verse 10, Christ's judgment on us as ministers. We, this, is, this is written to Christians. Again, remember, Paul uses this plural language and he's, he's referring to himself and has application for all of us. So he really kind of means, I remember, I, I know this, I keep this in mind. But it, it applies to us as well. Paul says, I remember the coming judgment from verse 10. And then, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, it's not, not a fear like being terrified. It's a fear that is sober-minded, like we all are in any situation where we know we're going to be evaluated and called to account over something. We're, we're always like that. We're, we're careful when we know such a situation is coming, and especially if the person who's going to be doing the evaluating is, is extremely important and if the consequences are, are, are large. We're careful and we're, we're sober-minded. We fear, in a sense. Well, this is not just a, a boss at work. This is not just evaluating keeping a job or a pay raise or, or a grade in a class. This is the Lord. It's the judgment seat of Christ and its consequences that will carry on in heaven for us for eternity. Significant consequence before God. And so Paul's saying, I, I we should be sober-minded and, and, and interact with him and think about him with some reverence and some awe. He's the Lord and he is to be obeyed as Savior and as Judge. And with that in mind, then continuing on in the verse, he persuades others. 
Now, the word persuade there is not quite as narrow as some other words could be, like, like say, evangelize or preach to. It's, it's kind of broad, probably because Paul has in mind kind of a broad, wide range of ministry. He's going to be speaking to non-Christians, which evangelism would, would be appropriate, or Christians also, which maybe you might say preaching or teaching. He's going to be talking about basics, introducing just the, the starting points and also deeper things. And he's going to be doing it in formal settings, maybe speaking to a crowd in informal settings, in one-on-one settings, across a table somewhere. He's got all kinds of what I've been calling ministry in mind. And in all of it, his goal always is trying to persuade all sorts of people to draw near to, wherever you start, draw closer, to draw near to and surrender to Christ, be united with him and walk with him. Ministry. Trying to persuade others towards Christ. He's continually doing that, motivated by the fear of the Lord. I know that I'm going to be judged, but God knows what I am. Now, right there, we need to consider something carefully. So we're going we're to slow down here. And if you notice, I just threw in the next phrase from the verse. But God knows what I am. Depending which English translation you're reading, you, you might have a sentence break there. This is kind of, kind of a longer sentence in the original language, and as often happens in English, we have to break it somewhere. But really, the, the three thoughts here of judgment, persuasion, but God knows who I am, those all kind of belong together. So we need to think about them together. And I think slowing down and looking at this is going to be pretty helpful for us. We should read that, that thought, those three points there, all together, something like this. Here's an example. Suppose I have something wrong with one of my teeth. It's really tender, sore. In that situation, with sore tooth, draw out the parallel with the verse now, knowing the pain in my tooth, I eat my lunch. And my behavior is known to my sore tooth. Pain in my tooth is, for me, very present tense. It's, it's front of the brain knowledge. And every time I sit down to a meal, it governs how I eat. I'm careful. I chew on the other side. I chew slowly, and I keep all the food over there because I know that if I slide over here and I bite down, that's going to just consequence. So I don't, I don't do that. I know the pain of my tooth, and so I chew in a way so as to please the tooth. Now, you might not know that sitting at the table with me. You might just think that I'm eating really slowly. But my tooth knows what's in my heart. My tooth knows what I'm doing, that I'm living and chewing so as to please it. Tooth pain, then, is the motive for proper eating. Not for eating in general, for proper eating. Let me say it again, then, differently. Tooth pain doesn't drive me to eat. Tooth pain drives me to eat in a certain way, to take care about how I eat, knowing the pain of my tooth. So back to verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade 
And God knows that I'm a God-fearing, God-pleasing minister. I hope you all can see that too, you Corinthians. That's where it goes. But the focus here first is on pleasing the Lord in the manner of persuasion. Okay, so is that clear? Why does that matter? I think, obviously I've slowed way down here and I'm looking at just one verse, one, one sentence. I think that focusing on this actually helps us in a couple ways. It's freeing and it's correcting. Freeing, I think for a lot of us, at least for me, if you're a Christian and if you're familiar with this verse, as I am, I think you perhaps read this verse kind of like this. We usually read, I know there's a judgment coming. And God's going to judge me for not witnessing. So fearing being judged for not witnessing, I witness. I persuade people. We use this as if it's a motivation, a judgment motivation to get out there and evangelize. Try to persuade people. Fearing that... That's what drives me forward. In other words, God's judgment drives me to talk about God's forgiveness. Fearing God's judgment drives me out there to talk about how gracious and merciful and kind and loving he is. Have you ever been in a situation where you see a mother take her son and say, go say you're thankful. And the kid comes over to you. Thank you very much. And you kind of wonder, is that kid really thankful? Because it seems like just on point of death, he said he was thankful. I don't really know if that fits. It doesn't quite jive. Have you ever seen two kids hug and make up? I'm sorry. With teeth gritted, angry? Something doesn't quite fit there. Ever seen somebody driven to talk about the loving, merciful, gracious character of God, fearful being judged? Something doesn't quite fit there. Right. It doesn't quite fit there. And that's actually not what the verse is saying. So we need to be freed of something here. Yes, we have commands to witness, and yes, we have responsibility, but fear is not the motivator here in this passage to drive us out for fear of consequence to talk about the gracious and loving God. Now, there is motivation in this passage that moves us out in life and out as witnesses. Spoiler alert, that's the second point, the love of Christ. That is consistent driven by the love of Christ to talk about the love of Christ. That's consistent. We'll come to that. We need to be free, and, and we, we can be, thankfully can be freed from this kind of, by the scruff of the neck, being dragged out to talk about how thankful I am, how good God is out of fear. That's not what's going on here. Step away from that. Fear is not the motivation for witness. But there's correction here. And for me, I, I see that and I, and I kind of say like, thank goodness. 
Because not only does that come out weird, when, when you're the one that the kid is kind of like shoved towards to say thank you, you kind of feel the inconsistency in that that feels a little strange. But I think this is true for all of us. Fear actually isn't going to drive you to the kind of witness that is actually persuasive. That you, when you feel the scruff of the neck, even if the other person doesn't notice any inconsistency, something in your heart isn't moving you. That, that's the motivation that's, that's never going to actually effectively push us out there. Love will. Coming to that. I'm thankful. I'm, I'm really thankful to be freed by understanding this verse properly. That's not, that's not what he's doing here. But he is... Fear of the Lord is on his mind because it's a correction. So it's worth talking about that. That's actually more in this passage. It corrects our methodology. Helps us to keep away from somehow perverting how we share, how we present, how we persuade, so that what we're saying and how we're saying it is consistent and a consistent representation of the truth of God and his character. Keep the motive of the fear of the Lord, God's evaluation, God's judgment of us, and it replaces other motives like maybe numbers or popularity, comfort. You see, Paul wants to proclaim Christ and see some sort of positive outcome, some sort of change, like every minister does, like we all do. What's tricky about that, if you think back to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 2, what's tricky about wanting to see change and trying to persuade people to change is that that's a natural breeding ground for all kinds of sinful methods, some of which we see mentioned in chapter 4 that Paul disavows. Ministry done in disgraceful or underhanded ways with cunning, tampering with God's word. And we mentioned those things and said we put those aside. Any kind of manipulation or deception, cash prizes and entertainment and bribes, softening the hard parts, kind of like smoothing out the corners, maybe just skipping them all together. Whatever is needed to persuade change, if it can look like it's producing a crowd and making something significant happen, very tempting. It's wrong, but really tempting. And Paul is in the persuasion business, which means he's like standing on tempting ground. And so God wants to help him with the temptation by reminding him, I'm going to call you to account on that. The real motive is not the crowd and the public's evaluation of you. The real evaluation is mine. So he puts out a motivation here that's incredibly helpful. And it keeps Paul from some of the things like in chapter 4. And it keeps him from some of the things that come on in the following verses, from, from depending on, from boasting in self and his own abilities, and, and especially how, how he brings up here how the others who are his opponents, they boast in appearance and public presentation. 
Paul's kept from that, remembering the fear of the Lord. Moving on through the passage then. He, he knows that God knows it's in his heart. I hope you Corinthians do too. And I'm not trying to boast in myself, he says. I'm trying to give you something to be proud of in me and to see that I, I'm, I'm worth following, I'm worth emulating, especially in the face of those who boast in public appearance and not about what's in the heart. There was a clear difference between how Paul publicly presented and how his opponents publicly presented. He doesn't state it all very clearly here, but it's hinted at in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. There's a connection here between the appearance that the others leaned on and this being beside yourself. Probably what's going on is that his opponents prized and were proud of and used as a attraction technique public outward displays of the supernatural in some way appearing like that guy is in touch with the spirits maybe it was speaking in tongues maybe it was displaying visions and trances maybe like often happened in the shrines priests and priestesses in the shrines in those days would would focus on whipping themselves up into a frenzy through dancing and, and not eating and spinning around. And they would sometimes be described as foaming at the mouth and just lost beside themselves. And while that may seem kind of crazy to us, something that it said in that cultural context was, wow, that person's spiritual. They're in touch with something. And Paul says, hey, some of that may be fine. I do some of that. He speaks in tongues a lot. To God. But to you, I'm in my right mind. All Paul does, and from chapter 4 again, is just openly state the truth. And by contrast, seems boring. Boring. He just talks about the truth in plain old language and makes us think about it. Boring. Paul, don't you know people want something else? Paul, don't you see all the crowds around all these opponents? Don't you see all that? And Paul says, I see that, and I see the judgment seat of Christ, and I realize I'm going to stand accountable. Not for did I draw a crowd to myself and make a name for myself, but did I openly lay out in front of people so they could clearly understand it, the message of reconciliation, yes or no? And did I lean on, did I trust in God and God's Spirit to shine light into people's eyes and open their eyes to the truth, yes or no? Or did I lean on my own appearance and my own technique, yes or no? I'm going to be called to account for all that. And remembering that, he persuades properly. That is always a need for us. To remember, I will be called to account for how I persuade. 
Not that we're supposed to be as boring as we possibly can be and as unattractive as, as imaginable, but we are to think about, I am supposed to present the message of the gospel clearly without distraction and not lean on technique to draw people. Paul's helped. We would be helped if God would seat in us deeply a motivation that comes from the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to be called to account, so will all of us. So we witness properly. We teach properly. We persuade in light of the evaluation that's coming. That'll leave us with something we can be proud of before people and before God. Who knows? That's the first observation about the first motivation. And I'll be honest here, that's the part of the sermon I don't really like. I appreciate very much the being freed. That's really helpful to me. But I do feel like I, I already kind of, if, if you've got a leaning here, I already kind of lean on that foot a little bit. I think a fair bit about being evaluated, about being judged, about needing to present and needing to live in a way that, will, that when I face this verse 10 will be pleasing to the Lord. I think a fair bit about that. And the second point is, There's not much chance that I'm going to be able to preach this well, but this is glory. The second observation here, Christ's particular love for us is great motivation for a life of servant ministry. This, men and women, May God open your eyes to this because this is life. Christ's particular love for us, for you, is great motivation. If it would sink into you and it would become the driver in your life, it's great motivation for a life of servant ministry. Verse 13, you see, Paul says, sometimes I live towards the Lord, sometimes I live towards you, but it's not for Paul. None of it's for Paul. It's for the Lord or for them. For, verse 14, because for the love of Christ controls us, controls me. Christ's love for me controls me. The idea behind, your version may have controls or compels or some, some other word like that, but the idea is of being kind of like pressed and driven. Christ's love for me propels me. Because I've come to understand the following. I concluded this, I get this, I understand this. 
that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. One, Christ, obviously. He's the singular pivot point in history that changes everything. That one died, and that changes everything. He died, crucified on the cross, and his death was in the place of a group of people. Notice. A group called all here. And that death then had a result that it caused for that group. Therefore, all died because of his death. Notice this carefully. We're going to look again very carefully on this, at this verse and what it says and what it then obviously does not say. Sometimes this verse gets quoted and then applied within the theological discussion about the scope of Christ's atonement. There's a, a big and important theological discussion. The important question in that discussion being, was Christ's death for every single person who ever lived? Or was Christ's death specifically for some of the people who ever lived? Specifically those called in the Bible his elect, his people, etc. Which was it? Was it for all the people who ever lived or for some of the people who ever lived? That's the question being discussed in this theological discussion about the scope of Christ's atonement. And eventually someone references this verse and says, well, here's a pretty clear answer. Paul says, he died for all. Is it all or some? Well, he died for all. There it is. Seems pretty clear. Well, it may seem clear, but we have to read the whole sentence. Christ died for all, and therefore all have died. And literally, the word the is in the text. Christ died for all, and therefore the all have died. It's a group, the all. And Christ's death caused the death of that group, the all. All of the all died in the death of Christ, not potentially died. They all have died because he died for them. That cannot be said in any way of those who never become Christians that Christ's death caused them to die. That is only a statement about those who died in Christ, God's people, God's elect. It's really important that we see that. So I'm going back and forth over it a number of times. There's a group that is the all. Christ died for the all, and because of that, all of those all died. In Christ's death. This is actually just Romans 6, verses 1 to 4 in different language, if you know that passage. United with Christ, we died with him when he died. 
Remember like the balloon, uniting Christ in the balloon. When Christ went into the grave, all those who were in him went into the grave with him. He died and so we all died. We all died to sin. All of us. The all here must be God's elect, God's people. All who would ever become one day, or yet will one day yet become Christians, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all. All who are in Christ, Christ died for all of us. And he did so, verse 15, for a purpose. And this is the importance of that theological discussion about the scope of Christ's death. It's not just some irrelevant theory that we can safely skip over and leave to the theologians to argue about. There's a lot of details. So much thinking required there. Never mind that. Actually, we need to draw this forward. This is meat for our souls. Because when you see that the death of Christ is particular, targeting a group, you put a point on that perhaps. When you see that the death of Christ is particular, targeting you, Christian. And then in verse 15, you see that it is purposeful in its particular targeting of you, Christian, you suddenly realize that at the cross, God was not just tossing out generic possibilities that may or may not have an impact on you, depending on what happens and how you respond to it. God knew you. God had a deliberate intention for you. And he sovereignly accomplished it in you. He meant to put you to death in Christ's death. And he meant that and accomplished that in you, verse 15, so that those who live, those who live today, right now, this year, next year, next century, Whenever it is that we come to life, we, we, we become a Christian, you, you're born, you come to life, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves like they used to, but they would live for Christ, live for him who died for them and who was raised for them. God in Christ specifically, particularly pursued you to put you to death, to raise you to a new life. When we see this, this is amazing kindness and sweet, sovereign grace. This is love. This is what Paul sees as he looks at the cross. Now, next paragraph, we're going to see Paul sees more when he looks at the cross. Specifically, we're going to see substitutionary atonement in the next paragraph. It's coming up. That's really important. That's the core of the whole cross Idea, the plan of the cross is about substitution and atonement. But that's the next paragraph. Given that, Paul sees something else, something that he's become convinced of and now knows. Paul looks at Jesus, gentle and lowly, humble and meek, silent like a lamb led to slaughter. 
humiliated and agonizing, nails driven through his wrists, a crown of thorns pressed down on his head, tears and blood lining his dirty, stained face. And he looks at that and he sees a compelling, controlling, driving, merciful, generous, gracious, wide, long, high, deep, sovereign, particular love for him, for Paul. Paul realizes when Jesus went to the cross, he had me in mind on purpose. He had you in mind on purpose, Christian. That is a remarkable love. A love that put us to death in relation to sin and that breaks its power over us and then gives us an ability to live again differently. Free and no longer a slave to sin. Free to know the Lord and to walk with Him now. Free to live confident of the guarantee of the Holy Spirit in me and what that foretells in promise. Life forever in the presence of God, raised up again and given a new resurrection body to live in glory in heaven with Him and with His people forever. Paul became convinced of this and saw it happily concluded that I then realized that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians. That's this passage. That's the love that drove Paul across mountains and seas and into villages and cities, thankful at every turn for the privilege of being the aroma of Christ. Do you know that love? It is the greatest of all motivations. God's love for you in Christ. There is something God designed in us that resonates with and that, that responds to, that is drawn by, that moves towards loyal love. Especially if it is unexpected and undeserved. The glory of this God, the only God who is. The glory of God in the crucified and risen face of Christ is completely unexpected and completely undeserved. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ chased you down and caught you, put you in Christ, put you into the grave, and raised you up again to life, completely undeserved. This is the most surprising of all loves given by the hand of the most loyal of all lovers to you. We, in ourselves, were sinners and rebels resisting and fleeing. And if we're honest, we still sort of are. At an important, probably not the first level, but at an important level, we, we struggle to believe this about God. 
I don't think I'm alone in saying that verse 11 makes more sense to me. Leaning on that foot makes more sense. That God would want me to be cognizant of judgment and to, to live carefully. That has been written on our hearts since Genesis 3. That he is hard to please and exacting. And consequence is severe. And he probably, in some way, is out to get me. We come by that natural. We, we come by that from the beginning. There is someone who wants to whisper that into your ear and convince you of that. But that's in there somewhere. I should behave in a way that is deserving of acceptance. I should behave in a way that is worthy of being loved. And I don't really and so we shrink back and hide. We acknowledge the doctrine of the love of God on the surface out here, but I think probably we live more in verse 11. So I don't ask you, just for the sake of repeating it, I ask you, because I really want you to think about it, do you know this love? You agree with the doctrine. I, I, yeah, I get that. I do too. Do you know this love? Paul said he concluded this. He kind of had to work on this a little bit. Think about it. But this he realized, I hope we realize, is the whole point of the gospel. That God loved you because he loved you. You realize that's where the Bible roots God's love of his people? Why, 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 why? You come down to the bottom and the answer is, because I do. He loved you because he loved you. No reason other than that. He loved you and in love sent his beloved son to stand in your place at the cross to die for you, to take away from you the wrath of God. God in Christ, loving you and pursuing you, capturing you, executing you, so as to raise you to a different new life, loving you through the whole thing. Loving you through the whole thing. Call you servants, but not just servants. Children of his and heirs, and more than that, to call you a friend. It is astonishing if, if you see it. Do you know this love? Jesus said, 
The Father's love for me, and how much does the Father love the beloved Son? The Father's love for me, that right there is my love for you. Do you believe that? It is astonishing if you see it. It is a love that if you see it, it would move you to love, to love him in surrendered service, to love him and then to love others in his name, ministering to them that they might also come to find, to experience this love, to be loved by this most loyal of all lovers, to be set free like this. I said at the beginning, I'm going to preach this poorly. Mission accomplished. Because there's no way I can do justice to this. This God is a mighty friend of ours. This God is glorious. This God is good. And all of that is true, particularly because this God mightily, graciously, kindly poured out his love on you, sought you out deliberately, hunted you down to capture you and deliver you to newness and to an eternity of grace and mercy after grace and mercy unending. That's the story of Ephesians. That's what Paul sees when he looks at the cross. He sees the particular love of God for me. So what I invite you to, Christian, is to behold the glory of God in the face of the crucified Christ. Paul talked about that last chapter. But what you're seeing when you look at the glory of that God in the face of the crucified Christ is not just the intricacies of the doctrines of atonement. What you're seeing there is a pursuing particular love of you. That is glorious. That is kind. It is undeserved and completely surprising if you know who you are. And that kind of poured out, not just actualized, but displayed loyal love, God made us to resonate with. That's the motivation that if it sits at the bottom of your heart, will drive you on to anything. Do you know this love? I invite you to, to come and gaze at him. He'll do a better job of explaining this to you than I ever could. He, by his Spirit, will open up for you who he is in all of his loving kindness to you. And he'll move you to follow him. Move you to live for him who loved you, died for you, and was raised for you. This particular love of God for you is great motivation to live for him. Do you know it? May God open your eyes to it and show it to you. Let me pray.
Father, I, I am mindful that there were, there were several detours into detail this morning. And so I want to ask you, don't let your people get lost in the weeds, please. Over it all, shine your glory. Shine your love. Address our hearts at the level of motivation. Make us different, please. Free us and correct us, keeping in mind that there is an evaluation, there is a judgment from you. But would you particularly, Lord, would you, would you do something remarkable? Would you cause us to actually believe your wide, long, high, deep love for us and to see it in Christ's death for us? Give us eyes to see, please. Different ones of your people are in different places, have different needs. Would you address yourself to, to each of those things? If there are questions about this or that, bring answers or bring rest. If there's healing and doubt, if Satan has sown seeds of distrust, seeds of self-condemnation, pull those seeds out, Lord, and plant in there different, different plants, flourishing plants of life, you know what each one needs. Please address your people, build life into them, and do us good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.